welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Historians have long known of General Stephen G. Burbridge and his unpopularity in the state of Kentucky, I'm sorry, the Commonwealth of Kentucky. During the Civil War, he commanded the military district that encompassed Kentucky in 1864-65 and presided over a number of executions of rebel guerrillas. But there's more to his unpopularity than the obvious according to Brad Asher, author of The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, The Lost Cause, and the Legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge. We'll find out what's really behind that hatred when we talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the campus of East Carolina University in the Brewster Building, third floor of the Brewster Building, Office A320, but not representing the university or anyone else, just myself, as always, and my guests will do the same. I'm possibly the only one here this evening in the Brewster Building, in part because they're still trying to figure out why so many uh, people in the building have have suffered a dreadful cancer in the last uh, five years, ten years, and I, I wish that were... Uh, an exaggeration, but seems to be the case. Hopefully, it's not something in the building itself, but um, some people are keeping away and doing their work from home. I'm here, I don't know, I'm getting close close enough to retirement to just figure what the heck. Uh, I've been here 20 years almost. It, it's too late now to, to back out. Uh, having been here, well, 18 years, it, this year rolls around the time for the five-year uh, post-tenure review, people complain about professors getting tenure, then they never are accountable after that. Well, actually, there is something called post-tenure review, and every five years we fill out a form saying what we've 
plan to do for the next five years. And we get reviewed on what we've done for the last five years by a committee of our peers. Um, and I was struck by how little I've actually accomplished in the last five years in terms of research and publication when I wrote it all down because I find I feel like I'm working 60 hours a week. Uh, but some of it is doing this, which is a labor of love and, and counts for something uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio. And most of it is teaching and coping with new forms of teaching, learning to teach online, learning to uh, teach during a pandemic and so on. Uh, maybe I'll write a book in the next five years. We'll see. But uh, in the meantime, here we are. I'm on the technological front this week, uh, I'm talking technology and, and academia instead of football because uh, the season's getting to the point where you don't want to jinx anything by talking about the teams you like. And so we'll, we'll see how they do next week. Uh, uh, technologically, I'm have been using the Microsoft Surface tablet that I purchased earlier this year in part with the generous contributions many of you have made to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, using it now as an e-book fund. Uh, still really enjoying working with it. I read this week's book entirely on the tablet, have a digital review copy to read sent by the publisher. Uh, I, I read uh, the book about the Antietam cornfield uh, last month or a month and a half ago, also on the tablet. I have not fully come around to jettisoning my library in favor of, of e-books, uh, but I, I do like the way that it eases the storage problem because after each show, I think, should I keep this book or uh, put it on the shelf where there's no room at all, or, or should I do something else with it? Uh, the office shelves here are, are pretty much full floor to ceiling. Uh, there are books in every room at home. I periodically try to recycle some of them, try to uh, purge the shelves. The problem is that books fall into two categories. There are the books on my shelves that I haven't uh, read yet, and I, I can't get rid of those because I haven't read them yet, and there might be something in them I will want. And the other category, of course, are the books that I have read and can't get rid of because I've already read them and they become part of me now. So that really leaves leaves uh, puts a damper on how many books I can get rid of. Occasionally, I'll find one I haven't read, and I know I'm just never going to read it. Or sometimes, more rarely, a book I have read, I know I'll never look at it again, and I don't care to be reminded of what I was doing when I first read it. But that hardly dents the pile of getting rid of those few books. With the e-books, I can keep them all, and they don't take up any space. Uh, I'm not, however, about to jettison the entire Civil War Talk Radio library, physical library, in favor of e-books. Uh, in part because having an office completely filled with books, every uh, foot of wall space that I can get a shelf into has books on it. Is, is partly performative when students come to the office, which doesn't happen that often, but when they do, they invariably comment on how many books there are, as if they've never seen a room full of books, such as one might see at, uh, for example, the library uh, that they've never been in. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to model the, the book-filled life for them when they do come here. I remember being impressed, not not awestruck, but impressed by how many books uh, my mentor uh, David Herbert Donald had in his office at Harvard uh, I haven't mentioned Harvard this week uh, 
I was not not awestruck until I discovered he had a second office in the same building that was also crammed with books, and then found out he had a third office in the bowels of Widener Library uh, that was even more crammed with books. At that point, I was awestruck. Uh, he had a lot of books. Eventually, he remodeled his home to add a library wing with 10-foot shelves designed by an architect who was one of his former students. Uh, he was also very generous with sharing his books. I have Miller's photographic history of the war, for example, that the set of those books that, that at one point belonged to him and he, he gave to me. So uh, I guess at one point I will have to do the same and start giving the the library collected over the years of doing this show uh, to to the next generation of Civil War students. But, but not time for that yet. Uh, not this week, not next week, when we'll talk with Charlie Knight about uh, Robert E. Lee's Civil War day by day. That'll be on November 17th. And not the week after, when it will be Thanksgiving week, we'll take the week off, no live show that week. And then two more shows to end up the fall 2021 season. Uh, Caroline Janey returns to the show with her book about the end of Lee's Army, called Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. And finally, we'll wrap up and go on uh, winter break after talking to Deborah Willis, and her award-winning book, The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. So that's what's coming up. You can find out, as always, about those things from www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney and I were corresponding today. He reminded me tonight is show number 550 in the long history of Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, never imagined we'd get that far when we started. Uh, and your support helps keep it going. If you click on the PayPal button when you're at Impediments of War, the website, you can donate to the Civil War Talk Radio book fund, ebook fund, cigar fund, except I don't smoke cigars, so I don't use it for that. Bourbon fund, I occasionally use it for that. Uh, whatever it is, uh, I try not to just buy gas with it. It's not a gas money fund. Uh, whatever it is, it's not a charitable donation. Don't deduct it on your taxes, or you will end up in trouble. Uh, speaking of people who end up in trouble, the Union General Stephen G. Burbridge did his job conscientiously and thoroughly during the Civil War, but uh, the little many of us know of him is that he was reviled for doing it after the war, why was that so is the topic of a new book by Brad Asher, who joins us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Mr. Asher, are you there? Uh, yes, I am, Jerry, and I, uh, I very much enjoyed that intro about the uh, the problem of having too many books. I, uh, I suffer also from the same issue. You, you, you feel my pain, and I, I feel yours. Um, <laughs> I don't have – one of the problems with the e-book is I can't flip – the physical book over and look at the back and see what you do for a living and know, for example, if I should address you as doctor or mister <laughs> or reverend, um, the, what, what do you do? What's your day job? Uh, actually, I am an independent scholar and my day job is I have a position with the state government uh, in Kentucky. Um, so the, I have a PhD from the University of Chicago. Um, mm. And then because 
my wife and I could never quite make the dual appointment thing work. Um, I History has become an avocation for me rather than a vocation. So uh, uh, I have no uh, no institutional backing for uh, to to uh, to make any disclaimer for. I speak on behalf of no institution. <laughs> well, well, uh, Doctor Asher, let me be correct about that. Congratulations on that. The uh, I, I wonder about this. Does it make it in some ways easier? not necessarily to do research or find time for writing, but uh, when you're doing a book like this, it's not because you have to. No one's going to review it for a 10-year case. No one's, no, I mean, the readers at the press will have to read it and approve it. It's peer-reviewed, but uh, your your work doesn't depend on it, so, so it really can be a labor of love. Sometimes I, I wonder if doing something professionally kind of takes a little bit of the joy out of it for some people. Yeah, I think it, I I mean, it is freeing in a way that it's not, I, I don't have the uh, the sort of tenure hanging over my head or uh, that kind of, uh, all the things that build up in academic careers, committee mm-hmm. service and all that stuff. But um, the, uh, the, the other thing is, of course, you don't have access to, the good libraries and the networking and and the other things that come with being uh, in an academic setting. So it is a labor of love. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I I joke. My last book came out in 2011, so I'm on a I'm on a one one book per decade pace, which I'm not sure would impress a tenure committee if I were if I had one. No, <laughs> well, you're actually ahead of me. I'm, I think I'm 11 years since the last book, and, and uh, but I have tenure, so I could just put my feet on my desk and and do nothing all day. In theory, T- taxpayers would not care for that, and, and believe I me, the, I don't. I have the same <laughs> issue with uh, my state government job. Taxpayers would not care for it if I just put my feet on my desk and didn't do anything all day. No, well, your your subject of your book, uh, General Burbridge, certainly did not put his feet on his desk in Kentucky and and do nothing all day. Um, how how did you come across his story to decide that this would be a good subject for a book? Well, so my previous book was about uh, an enslaved woman and uh, and her former mistress, and in researching that book, I kind of. I, I came across uh, in the Civil War chapter of that book. I came across the the uh, the figure of Burbridge, who I had not uh, known prior to that time, and uh, he as he just uh, he had such a black reputation, such an awful reputation that I thought, surely that's a bit of conventional wisdom that needs to be questioned. And so then I started to look into him a little more, uh, a little more in a little more detail after that book came out. And, uh, and, and that's how I got started. I, I gather he was not an easy figure to research. He's not an easy figure to research. He does not have a, like a vast trove of personal papers. Um, he does have official correspondence, um, and uh, and and the various uh, published correspondence in the in the uh, in the official records, and then he has various papers uh, here and there among different archives. But it's not it's not a, a treasure trove, um, and it's, so it's very hard to kind of figure out what he was thinking. It's uh, you can you can see what he was doing and kind of infer motivations from that, but it, it is difficult. To, to know what he thought 
um, as he was undertaking these actions. So he has this this negative reputation. Uh, is that still the case today? I mean, is he a household name in Kentucky, or do you have to uh, among college graduates, or or, or is he has been draft, dropped from the? So he gets a he gets a paragraph or so in in every uh, Kentucky history that covers the the war, but outside of of historians, um, he's not very well known. Most people have forgotten him. Um, so a, a lot of people, uh, when told the title of the book, think it's a story about Christian Leitner, the Duke basketball player, and I have to explain <laughs> that. <laughs> no, no. If you had been alive 130 years ago, you would have known who Stephen Burbridge was. But but the 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 rep the the dark reputation he has has kind of now slid into uh, into obscurity. Well, this book hopefully will bring it out some. Uh, we will talk about it more after a short break. We're talking tonight with Brad Asher, author of The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, The Lost Cause, and the Legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Brad Asher, author of The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, The Lost Cause, and the Legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge. So, this, I guess, let's start at the beginning with with uh, Burbridge's background. Is, is uh, was he from Kentucky himself? He is. He's a Kentuckian. He was born in 1831 in in Scott County, which is uh, 
it's not the heart of the bluegrass region of the state, but it's it's pretty close to it. Um, and his uh, his family was well to do. Um, they owned quite a few slaves, uh, had quite a bit of land. Uh, for a time, his father's uh, farm was the uh, was the most highly valued in Scott County. Um, so he was a member of of uh, in Kentucky, we call them the bluegrass gentry, just the the kind of favored sons of the of the bluegrass elites. Uh, same kind of social status that uh, that Henry Clay and his kids would have come uh, out of. Um, and uh, he followed the the normal paths of the bluegrass gentry. I mean, he he went to uh, he went to school. He had a military. His 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 uh, f- uh, father and grandfather had. Uh, fought in the revolution in the war of 1812. So he had this kind of military heritage. Uh, his uncle raised uh, racehorses. Uh, and like I say, they, uh, they were, he was before the war, uh, was a slave owner. Um, he did move out of the bluegrass area uh, as a young man uh, to uh, Logan County, which is kind of South Central Kentucky. Um, and it's, hard to know why that would be the uh, the competition for a social status is pretty fierce in the bluegrass so he may have wearied of that uh, or it may have just been uh, there was good land available at a good price and so he uh, he picked up and 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 moved there in the 1850s so given that 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 background that he's comes from you know wealth privilege slave owning that makes really remarkable uh, that he becomes the most hated man in Kentucky. And, and here, we'll cut to the, the chase, as they say, uh, because your argument is that he becomes a, a scapegoat for the, the lost cause. He becomes uh, someone that, that, that white Kentuckians can hate uh, because of his, his union loyalty, not just his union loyalty. Well, well you tell us, what, what was it that they hated about him? Well, so there's the uh, there's multiple facets to the hatred. Um, first of all, there's the stated reason for the hatred, which is mm-hmm. um, uh, the uh, what they called the illegal and illegitimate executions of the uh, of the prisoners that you alluded to at the top. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a crackdown, the crackdown on civil liberties uh, that happened uh, during the war. And for those two reasons, he was viewed not as a regular Civil War general, but somebody who fell outside the pale of civilized warfare, of being a gentleman. Um, And uh, when you look at the way that those criticisms developed, the, uh, the, the, the crackdown on civil liberties really generated this intense criticism of him of, of uh, being an aspiring dictator or a tyrant uh, in Kentucky. Um, and that criticism was really leveled at him by um, uh, the unionists in the state who were very, for the, for the most part, were pro-slavery unionists or conservative unionists. And they're, they're, they didn't like the civil liberties crackdowns, but they kind of neglected the reason behind the civil liberties crackdowns, which was they were very uncomfortable with the emancipation policies that kind of became the standard for the Lincoln administration in 1864. And it was Burbridge who uh, was charged with enlisting 
uh, enrolling and enlisting Kentucky slaves into the Union Army. And thus, he was kind of the architect of the destruction of slavery in the Commonwealth. And when that became official war policy, that's when the criticisms and the petitions and the mass meetings that looked a lot like to Burbridge in his eyes and in the eyes of his commanders looked a lot like disloyalty. And so he began to crack down on those things. And then uh, the criticism came out that he was uh, an aspiring tyrant, that the reason he was doing that was kind of an overreach. And then the criticism... Sorry, go ahead. Let me just jump in and and sort of jump around chronologically here. Okay. So so by the time he is in command in Kentucky, eighteen sixty four, he is cracking down on dissent on and and it's a thin line between legitimate political dissent and disloyalty. That we I can and, and you're right. You can see why people you know would find that troubling. Um, but he's got a record by this time as a a legitimate uh, Civil War commander uh, who has served. He's not just appointed out of nowhere in 1864. He he joins the war right at the very beginning. In fact, earlier than, than a lot of other Kentucky Unionists. So let's take a minute and go, look at his go, war record. Yeah, yeah, we can go. Well, that's, that's a good thank you for stopping me and making me take a step back a little bit. He's uh, a... <laughs> Yeah, he does. Uh, so Kentucky, again, has a fairly interesting and unusual history. At the outbreak of the war, the state officially declared its neutrality between North and South. And uh, But early on, Burbridge recruits a Unionist regiment and is commissioned a colonel of that regiment. And is uh, he kind of patrols this... Uh, uh, the southern edge of the Union in Kentucky. Um so by the time that Kentucky kind of chooses the Union side, um, there is a, uh, a, a line of, of Confederate forts or troops kind of right along the, the thin southern edge of Kentucky. They have a, a Confederate capital at Bowling Green. There's actually a star in the Confederate flag for Confederate Kentucky. And so Burbridge is there on that border with his men patrolling that area. And eventually, not uh, so much for what Burbridge does, but for what happens at Forts Henry and Donaldson uh, with Grant and what happens at, uh, uh, on the other side uh, in the Eastern Mountains, the Confederates leave the state. And at that point, uh, Burbridge and the 26th Kentucky, uh, Burbridge is sick, and so he does not fight at the Battle of Shiloh, but his men do, 26th Kentucky, and, and they're federalized, become part of the federal army at that point, and, uh, and then he goes on to play a pretty, uh, pretty substantial role in the Vicksburg campaign, um, was accepted the surrender at the Battle of Arkansas Post uh, as, as the kind of prelude to the Vicksburg campaign, and then uh, his men... Uh, were right up against the the walls of Vicksburg and participated in the siege and uh, and so he had a good reputation as a commander in the field up to that point and uh, I, as I, I say in the book that had he not been appointed uh, commander of the state he probably would have retired as a kind of uh, you know competent uh, son of Kentucky who who fought well in the war. Um, 
but that's not what happened. He he eventually was uh, uh, went from after the Vicksburg campaign. He had a little uh, leave, and then they sent him to Louisiana, where he was essentially uh, kind of chasing guerrillas and and confiscating cotton and and sugar and other things. And he kind of decided, well, I can do this. I would rather do this in Kentucky. Uh, and at that point, kind of he got his uh, allies in the state to kind of start agitating to him to be appointed commander because the previous commander had been uh, relieved of duty. And uh, he was uh, uh, got a temporary appointment in February of 64 and was officially appointed in March of 64. Um, coming, uh, you know, coming in with the support of a lot of those unionists uh, that he would later alienate um, as he uh, as he as he followed um, the emancipation policy. So Kentucky is very much a war zone. The The front line has moved down into Tennessee, but uh, you've got a lot of cavalry raids coming in. So, so is Burbridge actively fighting Confederates when he's commander in the state? He, I mean, his, uh, he never leads troops in the field uh, against uh, guerrilla bands that are active in the state. Uh, he is receiving intelligence and ordering his uh, the troops in the state to kind of uh, uh, where to go, who the biggest threat is. Um, uh, and it's a kind of uh, concentrate your available forces and chase after where an event has already occurred. Um, mm. And that's very frustrating. Um, he does lead uh, three expeditions. He leads troops uh, three times while he's commander. The, the first uh, time is in June of 64, when um, uh, he he actually had planned an expedition into southwestern Virginia to hit uh, John Hunt Morgan, who had who he learned was planning another raid into Kentucky, um, and instead Morgan beats him, uh, passes through the mountains before Burbridge can pass into Virginia, and Burbridge ends up chasing Morgan, uh, much like every other Union commander who had to confront Morgan. Um, but this time Morgan is, has, uh, it's a different band of men who are riding with Morgan. They're not quite as disciplined. They're not quite as, uh, as good. And Morgan is a little bit overconfident, um, and, and Burbridge defeats him soundly, uh, ends the raid on the last and final raid on Kentucky, uh, at the battle of Cynthiana in, in, uh, June, 1864. And that is really the, uh, the feather in his cap as commander of Kentucky, of commander of forces in Kentucky. He then makes two, he participates in, in two later uh, expeditions into southwestern Virginia to attack Saltville, uh, which is where there were some, uh, some salt works that the Confederacy used to, for food preservation and other things. Both those uh, expeditions are uh, there are a little bit of debacles. Uh, one, he runs out of ammunition, has to pull back before he uh, can wage the final assault on the works. And the second one, he's under the command of another uh, commander. And while the salt works do get destroyed, uh, his performance is pretty harshly criticized by his commander. Now, it's at one of those that he is leading some United States colored troops. Yeah, that's uh, the first the first one. The first Saltville raid. And uh, some listeners will be familiar with that uh, as an example of, of battlefield atrocity where the, uh, some of the wounded federal soldiers are then executed by Confederates 
on the battlefield, some of the black troops are, are murdered. This brings us to 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 uh, Burbage's role as as the foe of slavery. Given that he's a slave owner before the war, that he's, he's never expresses any views of, about the brotherhood of, of mankind or anything like that, that I can tell from the book. No. Um, what is it that, that makes him so enthusiastic as commander in enforcing the policy of recruiting African-American soldiers? So you're right. He's not. A, a, he's certainly not a racial egalitarian. He's not this kind of anti-slavery hero um, that some other union, you could hold up some other union commanders uh, would be, was not anti-slavery by nature. In fact, earlier in the war, um, he he followed union policy of returning slaves to owners. If slaves came within his lines, he would send them out and return them to uh, their owners. It was only after uh, uh, emancip- uh, only after black enlistment was extended to Kentucky um, that he kind of played a role in um, in 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 freeing uh, Kentucky's uh, slaves and. What I argue in the book is that it's not about abolition or emancipation so much. It is about um, what is required to end the war. He is what they called at the time an unconditional unionist, and he is willing to follow uh, the war policies of the administration no matter where they lead. If they lead to the destruction of slavery as a price for putting down the rebellion, well, putting down the rebellion and restoring the union is worth that price. And that was uh, not a position that many of Kentucky's uh, unionist elites, they were not willing to go there. Um, But Burbridge uh, and some other Republicans in the state, some other union uh, uh, soldiers in the state were unconditional union men. And when the conditions for restoring the union changed to include uh, abolition of slavery and emancipation of the slaves, he he followed that path and uh, and implemented those policies. I mean, Kentucky is absolutely a fascinating place during the war. There's more and more scholars are f- focusing on how many Kentucky Unionists were virulently pro-slavery and only opposed the rebellion because they thought their slaves were safer in the Union than out of it. And so it's not surprising, I guess, that when the war turns, these pro-slavery unionists aren't willing to turn with it. Right. They kind of signed up for a different war uh, at the beginning than the war became by the time Burbridge was commander. And you get, by reading their uh, criticisms, you get the real feeling that they feel betrayed, like the the war has taken a turn that they really don't agree with. Um, And there is a, there's a, a union officer, lieutenant, who says if this policy had been announced at the beginning of the war, um, the state, you know, Kentucky would not have stayed in the union. And if had it been announced uh, just a year ago, um, every officer would have would have resigned their commission. And then he said, so therefore, I am resigning my commission now. And a lot of Kentucky union officers did resign from the army in the wake of the, uh, because they disagreed with emancipation as a war policy. 
Uh, the example of Frank Wolford is particularly interesting. I, when I wrote about the Army of the Ohio many years, I recall reading uh, he, he was a figure in that, in, in Don Carlos Buell's army. And uh, uh, he is clearly a Union war hero. He's been, been wounded fighting for, for his country, but he's also pro-slavery. And he becomes an enemy, to, and Burbridge ends up having to arrest him. Yeah, four times he gets arrested because uh, he uh, he'll get arrested, uh, and you know he is. You're right, exactly right. He is a war hero. He is absolutely a, a, a Union war hero. Um, but when uh, they start recruiting uh, blacks into the army, he says, "I I, I can't. I will not countenance this." Um, and eventually, because of his statements, uh, you know, calling Lincoln a tyrant saying the war has been turned into a war of plunder, uh, urging Kentuckians to actually resist uh, the order to, uh, to um, uh, allow their slaves to be enlisted, if, it recruit, you know, if recruitment officers show up to resist them forcibly. Uh, he's eventually uh, cashiered from the army, and then that frees him up to make more speeches uh, and to, uh, to be a very uh, kind of... Uh, out there defender of the pro-slavery unionist position. Um, and that he, he uh, like say, uh, you're, uh, as you said, Burbridge arrests him numerous times, uh, banishes him for a while, asks him to just, I won't arrest you if you'll just please stop making speeches. He's unwilling to do any of this. It, it's a, a fascinating place where people have, have so many conflicting loyalties at the same time. We'll talk more about uh, Stephen Burbridge's uh, actions during the war with our guest Brad Asher when we come back from a short break. The book we're talking about is called The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, The Lost Cause and the Legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Brad Asher, author of The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, The Lost Cause, and the Legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge. So, Brad, we've got this figure who is is you know cracking down on dissent on people like Frank Wolford who oppose union emancipationist policy. Uh, one of the other big complaints you note about about Burbage during the war is the Hog Order. Uh, that caught my attention. What was the Hog Order? So the Hog Order is. Uh in my view, it's something that people seized on, but actually was not all that significant. What what it was, was uh, Burbridge issued an order that said uh, Kentucky hog farmers cannot sell their, uh, cannot sell their pork, their pigs to uh, uh, pork packers on the free market. They're the first, uh, the first buyer, they have to give kind of a, a, a first option to the army. And the army was paying less than the market price. Um, and so this was a, a obviously to the economic detriment of all the hog farmers in, in Kentucky. And they viewed it as a corrupt play uh, by Burbridge's uh, friends in the packing industry to help the, uh, those to, to route um, all Kentucky's hogs to the army connected uh, packing houses. In fact, there's a later historical article that looks pretty close at the hog order and, and found that the uh, a lot of the uh, the market, uh, there was a lot of collusion among the other packing houses and they were driving up the price of pork beyond kind of what the uh, what the government had the uh, money to pay for. And so it was kind of a it was a cost cutting move to provide salt pork for the troops in the field. Um and uh, it was the the governor at the time alleged that it cost uh, Kentucky hog farmers three hundred thousand dollars, and the quartermaster who was kind of in charge of the program said, uh, look, did his own analysis and said, and it saved the Union Army two hundred thousand dollars. So there was a savings on the Army side. There was a cost, of course, to the uh, to the hog farmers. But the hog order and the and the uh, policy was only in place for about a month before Burbridge, uh, the complaints of Kentucky's farmers got to Washington, and and uh, it, the 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 uh, the authorities there told uh, Burbridge to rescind the order. So the hog order was in place for about a month. Um, did some economic damage uh, and did some long term damage to to Burbridge's reputation. What really affects Burbridge's reputation in the post-war years are his actions against Confederate guerrillas in the state. Um, or at least this is the case made against him after the war. And here, it, it's certainly possible to understand why people took exception to some of the things he did. Uh, I, what, what, what was it that he did? Let's. let's uh, well, so, so uh, the the. Guerrilla conflict in Kentucky is uh, is a it's a kind of ongoing low level uh, conflict that that there are numerous uh, encounters between guerrillas and troops, between guerrillas and civilians, unionist uh, uh, civilians and and uh, and returning soldiers are being killed by guerrilla bands after the defeat of Morgan uh, in June. The problem really kind of ramps up because a lot of his men. 
uh, are dispersed after the defeat and they kind of decide on their own that they're going to stay in the state and uh, and wage their own kind of uh, freelance war um, against unionist targets. Um, so it's a it's a problem, uh, obviously, and it's a problem of counterinsurgency. And Burbage really doesn't have enough troops in the state to uh, protect every town or to uh, spread his troops uh, in numbers uh, sufficient to uh, to control the the guerrillas. So what happens is, as I said, he kind of has a uh, mass the troops and chase after the guerrillas after an event has happened. And so they'll arrest one or two in the field or somebody will inform on their neighbor that said, hey, he's, you know, he's been riding with this band. And so his jails were full of people um, who were uh, alleged to be guerrillas. Uh, and technically, those people were supposed to have go through uh, a process of being tried by a, a military commission or a, essentially a court martial, but for enemy troops. Um, it's doubtful that all them, all of the prisoners uh, went through uh, that very formal process of of, uh, of trial. But it is also clear that some type of examinations were happening, and that these guys were in jail for uh, for sus- they were they were under suspicion. Uh, what what is the term of art from uh, from our most recent wars? They were unlawful combatants. Um, and so unable to kind of control the guerrilla war with troops, he kind of lands on this strategy in July of 1864 of, uh, of wherever there's a, a unionist civilian killed, four prisoners will be removed from the military prisons, brought to the site of the, uh, of the, of the killing and publicly executed. And the civilian population is kind of forced by the soldiers to come out and attend to the attend to the execution the uh, the, the men who are shot are uh, kind of buried in shallow graves it's very disturbing um, stuff um, and the the uh, but it's not outside the realm of other uh, act, uh, other actions that union commanders uh, had taken and certainly his commanders Burbage's commanders are not uh, outraged by what he's doing, uh, and Sherman, uh, Sherman, who is his uh, ultimate commanding officer, encourages him and says he thinks he's doing a good job. Um, and at the time, uh, the the pro-slavery union uh, people who are so angry at him about cracking down on dissent, they are not making a lot of noise about the uh, about the executions, um, probably because so many people are still dying on the battlefields and. There's actually a, a, a civilian law in place by the Kentucky legislature that has a similar kind of four-for-one uh, retribution uh, policy. It's only after the war that all these men who are shot, and uh, under Order 59, which is the order that implements that, there's well over 60 documented uh, executions Um it's only after the war that all these guys who are killed suddenly become legitimate Confederate soldiers on legitimate Confederate army duty, and therefore they were entitled to prisoner of war status, and therefore every one of these executions is essentially a violation of military law and a military murder, and uh, uh, this is why Burbridge is beyond the pale of, of civilized uh, Union commanders. 
So at, after the war, Kentucky politics shifts. Um, you know, Ann Marshall has been on the show to talk about making a Confederate Kentucky. Uh, the 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 post-war state becomes very sympathetic to the Confederacy and the lost cause, uh, in part because the Unionists were pro-slavery, and now they've they as we've seen, and they've lost that battle. But they're not sympathetic to the new order of of emancipation and equality. But you make the argument they can't be angry at Abraham Lincoln and his hallowed memory. Uh, so Burbridge makes a great guy for them to be angry at. Right. And I think one of the great things about Ann Marshall's book is how she shows that that um, it's this kind of Confederate Kentucky is not, it doesn't just happen, it's made. And there's a, a big cultural effort put into the making of it. Um, now, you know, take away Burbridge would would Confederate would uh, Kentucky still embrace a Confederate memory? Probably, but he was very useful in that ideological effort because they could, uh, because of his actions, uh, they could paint him as a unique kind of villain that uh, made the uh, made Kentucky suffer nearly as much as the South itself, and uh, and and then. If you look at the party he represents, well, this is the same party that's trying to to uh, you know introduce the Freedmen's Bureau and introduce these amendments that we don't agree with, and so he becomes very wrapped up in the kind of lost cause critique of uh, of the war and of the uh, of the post war policies um, meant to to make uh, emancipation. You have this kind of Hatred that begins uh, among the uh, among the conservative unionists, and they um, are pretty willing to get into bed with the with the Confederate uh, returnees who come back to the state and kind of seize control of democratic politics. And you, so both these groups don't they nobody none of them have much of a incentive to be salvaging uh, Burbridge's reputation. And so that that cultural effort that goes into making Burbridge kind of a, a scapegoat for everything bad the Union did in Kentucky is, is very effective. And uh, uh, thus he becomes uh, literally the most hated man in the state. So what happens to him after the war? Uh, he, it's very common in uh, in, in in standard histories of, 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 of Kentucky to say that he never set foot in the state after the war, but that's not actually true. He stays, he's active in Republican politics for a few years until he has clearly become a liability and then the party kind of cuts him off. Um, he works as a claims attorney um, uh, in Covington, Kentucky for a while, um, but by the early 1870s, uh, it's, it's, he, and the other thing he does is he's constantly asking for some kind of patronage appointment um, from the uh, from the Grant administration. And every time he comes close, uh, a Kentucky politician will stand up and say, absolutely not. We will not support this. You can't do it. And so he loses out on a long list of appointments. Um, and so by the early 1870s, he's pretty discouraged that it's that anything good is going to happen for him in Kentucky. Uh, he moves to Washington, D.C., 
Uh, in the early 1870s, uh, he meets a wealthy uh, widow from Philadelphia. His, his uh, first wife died about the time that he left Covington. He meets a wealthy Philadelphia widow while, they're, while he's living in Washington. Uh, they get married. They go on a two-year honeymoon to Europe. Uh, they spend a couple of years in Saratoga, New York, uh, eventually moving to Brooklyn. Uh, and he dies in Brooklyn in 1894 um, and is is uh, is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. So he's uh, you know, forgotten by the Union, but not in Kentucky. Uh, you note that there monuments are a part of, of the way memory is shaped. And uh, you point out there are monuments not to Burbridge, but to to the people he executed uh, throughout the state. Right. It's kind of a unique uh, uh, contribution of Kentucky to the Confederate uh, monument uh, inventory or these so-called martyrs monuments where uh, they were put up at various places around the state commemorating a site where uh, Burbridge uh, had carried out one of these public executions. Uh, there are four of them. And then there's similar some plaques and other things that that uh, that note um, uh, some other executions and the, 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 uh, there's one very, I mean, in the Metro Louisville, uh, uh, area where I live, uh, that is, uh, uh, a nice tall obelisk that, you know, lists the name of the, of the, of the Confederate heroes that were killed and, and, uh, lists them as martyrs and says under the, uh, under the, uh, false, a doctrine of retaliation by Stephen Burbridge. So it's always important to name Burbridge on all these monuments to keep that memory fresh in the minds of those who will see it. Wow. Well, it's a, a fascinating story. He is uh, the most hated man in Kentucky, or or, or was at one time. Uh, but this is not the most hated book I've ever read. <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned from it. I'm fascinated by the twists and turns of Kentucky politics uh, before, during, after the war, and this book helps us understand uh, uh, one key element of that. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk about it, uh, but unfortunately we're at the end of our hour, so I'll just say, listeners, you will enjoy reading The Most Hated Man in Kentucky, The Lost Cause, and the Legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge by our guest tonight, Brad Asher. Brad, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, same here, Jerry. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, uh, just keep up the good work. Well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.